In our Sunday evening messages, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Hosea, and I'd invite your attention there tonight in Hosea chapter 8, in a message I call Misplacing God. We'll go to the end of the chapter for our text verse tonight. For Israel, verse 14, hath forgotten his maker. Israel hath forgotten his maker. Buildeth temples. Judah hath multiplied fenced cities. I'll send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. Every now and then, I have something that I don't want to lose. And so I put it up where I can be sure to find it. Why are y'all laughing? (laughs) You know what's coming. I forget where I put it. Now, it's not lost, and don't tell me it's lost, because I know better. I just don't know where it's at right now. Now, there is a good side of this, because while I'm looking for that thing I can't find, I find a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm not looking for. Oh, there's, oh, well, look. Ah. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's great. Sometimes I find things I'd forgotten I even had. Some of you young people, you'll understand that in a few years. Now, tonight God talks about a time when Israel had forgotten his maker. What an interesting concept. Um, You see, Israel was doing a lot of things. They were. They had a lot going on, a lot of religious stuff. We'll see that as we go through the chapter But they had somehow misplaced what they needed the most. And that was the strength and the vitality, the enjoyment and the enthusiasm of their relationship with God. Now, it wasn't gone. Still there. It it wasn't lost in that sense. But though they had this relationship, though they knew God, and they're going to boast of that in the midst of this chapter the blessings and the benefits that he brings to them were gone. It was like having something that you can't find where it is. I mean, if you can't find it, then whatever it is that that does for you is lost to you. They had forgotten God. If they hadn't misplaced him in the sense that God had moved, they hadn't, God was right where they had left him. And that's the way it always is. It was right where they'd left him. But they had forgotten exactly where that is and how to get back to him. What happens then to a people when they forget their maker? And that's what Hosea chapter 8. Remember, the book of Hosea is a book of messages that Hosea preached to the people of Israel long ago. But it's amazing when you read these prophetic sermons how applicable they are to our lives and to our land, yes, and to us as God's people. And so we'll see it. What did this do to them? Well, first of all, it created in them a false confidence. We see that in verse 1. Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as, as an eagle against the house of the Lord because they've transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. That Israel has cast off the thing that is good 
and the enemy shall pursue him. The blowing of the trumpet in this passage is today what is, uh, or then what it is today for the most part. It is the sounding of an alarm at the approach of an enemy. And uh, so when they were called upon to blow the trumpet, what they were seeing then, what they were anticipating was the enemies that were swooping down against them. And it was going to happen first through the uh, mighty armies of Assyria and then the Babylonians after them. Israel was powerless to prevent their onslaught. But they looked at these enemies approaching and they said, hey, we're fine because we know God. We've got God with us. Lord, we know you. And we know your promises. We know that you have promised to protect us, to take care of us. It's kind of like something we say a lot. Hey, God's got this. God, I know you. I know you. You're on my side. But God responded to them by pointing out their disobedience. Their disobedience. Why? Because they have transgressed my covenant. And Israel then says, now wait a minute, what are you talking about? We know you. We are your people and you are our God. We are serving you. What do you mean, God, that we've broken your covenant? Isn't it amazing how blinding sin is? How we can be far from God and not know it. How that sin can move us slowly but inexorably away from God and away from the power of God and all the while be blind to it. They had a false confidence in their relationship with God. So confident that they felt that they were immune from his chastening and his discipline. But God sums it up very succinctly. You have spurned the good. You have spurned, God says, the good. I read once a Christian writer who said that Christians have been inoculated against genuine Christianity. And uh, when he said that, I kind of thought, hmm, I wonder what that means exactly. But then he went on to explain, you know, how that a virus, and this is something that we've all (laughs) lived in the last couple of years. How that a virus comes along and it's possible then to take that virus sometimes and kill it then. And it, it, it create a vaccine. And, and then you get vaccinated against it so that uh, even if you catch the disease, it's a kind of a weakened version of the disease. That's how the flu shot works. Our bodies build up immunity and resistance. And it keeps us from experiencing the real thing. And Even these new vaccines that they come up with in the last two years, you know, they never really promised us immunity. Well, they did at first, and then they backed away from that. Well, it won't be quite as bad, and then if you get it, you won't go in the hospital. I don't mean to make fun of it, but folks, we've lived all this. Y'all remember this. This is how it's played out. Um, Sometimes, you see, I think we can inoculate ourselves with a mild form of Christianity. It kind of inoculates us. It protects us from the real and powerful variety. That's what I thought of when I thought of God saying to Israel, you have rejected the good. You've rejected the good. You see, a Christian life filled with commitment to God, with powerful blessings and spiritual vitality, 
God intends for us then to enjoy that blessedness. I mean, we talk about revival. But God really expects us to live in revival all the time. I mean, what is it? It's that vital, powerful relationship with God where our service is blessed, our our worship is powerful, we sense the presence of God, our prayers have have meaning, we we enjoy then our relationship with God. That's what God intends for Christianity to be. That's normal Christianity. Vance Habner perhaps said it best long ago. He said, we've been subnormal for so long. That if we ever got up to normal, we'd consider that abnormal. God said, You've spurned the good. Is it possible for us then to embrace a milder form of Christianity that requires less of our time and attention and devotion and dedication? Slightly less commitment. Kind of a Christian light kind of thing. Is it possible? It's possible in Israel of old. That's what they'd done. They had spurned the good. You spurned the good. But God, we know you. God, we love you. God, we serve you. But you have cast off, God says, the thing that is good. And because of that, when the enemy comes... You're not going to be ready for him. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? When you need God the most, you're not going to know how to get to him. Then they had a false independence. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. So a second thing that happened in Israel, remember this is the northern kingdom, was that uh, God was, was never in really what they were doing. Remember, they abandoned God's anointed, and that was Rehoboam. Rehoboam had some problems. That goes without saying. David was God's anointed. Saul was God's anointed. David was God's anointed. Solomon after him was God's anointed. That anointing was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that enabled them to do the work that God had called them to do. To be the king, to be the nation of Israel. Saul had it and he lost it. Gave it up. God anointed a shepherd boy in his place. Saul was still on the throne. But David was God's anointed king. Over and over, David would look at Saul to what he used to be. He he was the Lord's anointed. But the Spirit of the Lord, the Bible says it, had departed from Saul. And he sank deeper and deeper and deeper into disobedience and depravity. Ultimately, it drove him mad. Trying to be king over Israel without the anointing of the Spirit of God. No wonder after David had messed up, he cried out to God, Oh God, remove not thy Holy Spirit from me. He had seen what that would do to a king. He didn't want that. Oh God, don't, don't. So the anointing of a king was an important thing. But when the northern kingdom left the southern kingdom, they went from bad to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse. 
They never had a man on the throne in Israel that God had truly anointed as king. God says it simply. You set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. It was what would have given them their true power and ability not only to lead the nation, but also to protect them. To be under God's anointing then was to acknowledge his rule and reign over every aspect of life. It has to do very much in the New Testament with the term we're much more familiar with, the filling of the Spirit. Remember Paul told us to be not drunk with wine wherein is excess or debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaks of being under the control, under the influence, as we say, of the Spirit of God. As we constantly then seek His will and knowing that this is His work and it's His kingdom, the filling of the Spirit is our constant reminder that we are dependent on Him. As we heard so beautifully depicted in song today, I can't even walk. God, without you, hold my hand. What God then says here applies much more directly to a church today than to a nation Like Israel, we can find ourselves inventing all sorts of leadership devices, so many things that we might try for turning to this innovation and that one. We can try a lot of things as churches these days that God isn't in at all. You set yourself up kings. Uh, You set yourself up Uh, Something you think is powerful. Something that's going to be helpful. But God says, I'm not in it. I'm not in it. What we need is the blessing and power of God. That's what we need. Without that, what do we need? (laughs) We need the blessings and power of God. Then they invented false gods. Verse 4, from their silver and gold they made idols for themselves. You might remember that when they split off to form the northern kingdom, the first thing they did was set up a rival temple in Samaria. And they formed gods. uh, A calf god. (laughs) Wasn't that unique? Yeah. Going all the way back to what they did when they came out of Egypt. Setting up a calf god, a golden calf, and worshiping him. From their silver and gold, they made idols from themselves that they may be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And so we see them very quickly then. When they turned away from God, they just made them another God. When they had forgotten who their real God was, or when they had turned away from God, or when they couldn't remember even where God was, that's all right, we'll just make us another one. And they did. They did. You know how that plays out. I'm only going to look for something I can't find for so long until I'm going to go to the hardware store and buy another one. That's why I've got five hammers and 14 socket sets. 
20 rolls of duct tape. I, I, I tell you, you're not going to look for something very long until you go looking for a replacement. God condemns Israel then for their idolatry, for their brazen idolatry. And setting up the audacity of setting up an idol that they'd made by their own hands, God said. How can you call that God when you made it? could you call that God now today we tend to define idolatry as uh, anything that comes between us and God but that's not technically true idolatry comes when we worship a false God that's what idolatry is by its definition it is to worship a false God specifically it comes when mankind creates or fashions whether in an objective form out of wood or stone, something we carve or chisel, or by gold, something that we mold, where men make something in an objective form and they call that God, so they're worshiping their own creation. Or whether it's something that's more of a mental kind of thing, where we imagine God or we conceive of God But it is not the God of Scripture. It is not the God who reveals Himself through Jesus Christ. And never forget tonight that Jesus Christ has cornered the market on God's revelation. God, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, spoke to us in time past in many, many different ways. But hath in these last days, He said, spoken unto us by His Son, who is the very image, the expressed image of His person. You see, if you want to see God, you see God through Jesus Christ. Where else? Through nothing else. Nothing else. Jesus has cornered the market on the revelation of God. When we begin to think that God says things that God doesn't say, or we, we think that God is, is going to do something that God has never said that He's going to do, we begin to think of then God in a way that makes sense to us. And when we do that, we are very subtly changing the character of God. When you turn away, folks, from the authority of Scripture, you can make God into whatever you want Him to be. And people are doing that all over this country. End up worshiping then a false god. Certainly, Eastern mysticism is rampant in our culture. Certainly, Hinduism and its multiplicity of deities is springing around the world. Certainly, we have uh, the situation with Islam where they worship a god that they claim is a god of Scripture. But it's not. The god of Islam is not the god of the Bible. It's not. Certainly, all those things are true. But it's possible also for people to turn away from the truth of God and end up thinking that God is the way we believe Him to be. That we've invented Him to be in our own heart. The calf of Samaria speaks specifically of Baal, who was the most frequently represented God in ancient Israel. After a while, Israel didn't know who they worshipped anymore. We've already seen that in Hosea, where Israel didn't know where God stopped and Baal started. But there would come a time, God says, when you'll call me no more, my Baal. They'd get it right. 
You see, the false concepts of God can become so intertwined with, uh, and, and, and just mixed in together with the real God that, that it's hard for people to tell the difference. There's just enough truth in there to give it viability and just enough error to make sure they're worshiping a false God. So God condemns them for this very strongly. What a great question he asked them. How long until they attain to innocence? I love that. You know, the New Testament tells us that God uh, would have us simple concerning evil. Simple. Innocent concerning evil. You don't hear much about innocence these days. (laughs) Uh, The older I get, the more I I wish that I didn't know about a lot of things. You know, I, I long for a more innocent time. But I'll tell you one thing, there's one area of innocence that we all need to maintain in our hearts. And that is where we're just going to say, you know what, I'm going to believe what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. I know what the Bible says about salvation. I know what the Bible says about heaven. I know what the Bible says about hell. And you got a lot of complicated stuff you're throwing around here. I'm not going to worry about all of that. I'm just going to stay here with the simple truth of the Word of God. God said it. How long? Until you attain to innocence. And just go back to that simple joy that comes. From knowing God and knowing who He is and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. God help us to recover that spiritual innocence tonight. They invented then false gods. They end up then lastly with false expectations. And these false expectations are revealed under three headings in these verses. Um, They have left God out of their lives. They're blind to it. They had formed then a false God, and and they didn't really think they had. Uh, They were expecting then to be blessed, but they're not blessed. And it shows up, first of all, in their fruitfulness. Verse 7, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. You have sown the wind, he says, and will weep the whirlwind. Israel had sown the wind in their transgressions and turning to their idol worship and forgetting God. But it was going to come back to them in the form of failed crops and lost harvest. And being a vessel in which there was no pleasure. What's that talking about? It's the feeling that you get when you reach for that empty box in the the pantry that somebody emptied out. And instead of throwing it away, they put it back in the pantry. Honestly, we haven't had that experience very often since our kids are grown. But boy, our kids were bad about it. Empty out that cereal box, step it back in there, you know. Then you pick that thing up, going to make you a good old bowl of cereal before you go to bed and... Who got the last of the cereal? You know, that's a question that never gets answered. I'm going to tell you right now, no answer to that. God says, you're like a vessel in which is no pleasure. Why? Because it's empty. That's what he's saying. Your fields aren't going to produce. There's not going to be any, any grain in your vessels. No joy in there. You're not going to find anything there. God's, God's judgment train was coming into the station. 
It's interesting that God talks about this because Baal was worshipped as the storm and the fertility god. He had many manifestations, also known as Hadad, by the way. It was expected, though, that Baal would bring them abundant crops, that he could send them rain. As a storm god, you know, he was particularly adept with the lightning bolts. That's why the, the, the thing on Mount Carmel should have been such an easy thing for Baal. After all, he was a lightning bolt, fire kind of god. I mean, it, 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 no wonder Elijah taunted him the way he did. You know, y'all need to holler a little bit louder. Maybe your god's asleep. Maybe he's taking a nap. This should be easy for him. Let the god who answered by fire, let him be god. We all know how that turned out. God was the one who answered by fire. Baal was worshipped then. He was a storm god. The the, the god of lightning and thunder and rain that would bring the crops. See, God's judgment was brought to bear at the very point of their false worship. The very thing that they expected to get from Baal. Would be the source of their undoing. So they expected fruitfulness, uh, but they didn't get it. False expectations, remember. They expected protection. But they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I'll gather them, and they shall sorrow little because of the burden of the king of princes. Without God, you see, Israel felt alone and vulnerable and weak like a solitary wild donkey. It's almost always found in herds. Israel then made many alliances with other nations because they felt so helpless. But those alliances turned against them again and again and again. They would hire foreign governments to protect them. (laughs) Then they needed somebody to protect them from the ones they'd hired to protect them. Never worked. When God is put on a shelf and left out. We are constantly vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. There is no alliance that we can make. No power on earth, whether governmental, medical, economical, social, or anything else that can protect us if God decides to work against us, against us because we've left him out. And so they expected fruitfulness, but they didn't get it. They expected protection, but they didn't get it. They expected then powerful worship. And frankly, this one is the one that... Uh, Intrigued me the most. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin. They have become for him altars for sinning. I want to pause there for a moment and just make a comment. You understand why they would make many altars for sin. Because they were sinning a lot. Then God says they have become for him altars for sinning. That is, they, they turned these altars then, not in a place for repentance. These altars became not a place for them to confess their sins, turn from them, seek the forgiveness of God, restore their relationship to God. No, that's not what the altars became. The altars became a place for them to continue in their sins. God goes on. I have written for him the great things of, their, of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. 
but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. You see, God knows, God knows when we're serious about our repentance and when we're not. God knows if we're just going through the motions. God knows if we're saying, God, I'm sorry, but we're really not sorry. God knows if we say, God, I'm going to quit, but we really don't mean to quit. God knows it. He knows that even when we're lying ourselves, remember how blinding sin is. It's a picture then of a people who were continuing their devotion to God, their service of God, and all of their rituals, but their sacrifices and services were not designed to please God anymore or to honor God, but to please themselves. To put it in modern form, they, they kept coming to church week after week. But the only thing they were doing was making themselves feel better. Rather than the true worship of God in a church that honors God and proclaims His truth, they instead were creating something that honored themselves, made themselves feel good. God said it, you take my sacrifice and you eat it. But God says, I'll reject it. And then he tells them, you'll return to Egypt. There's a lot of ways to be in bondage. God had got them out of bondage. And they were about to go back in bondage. Maybe not in Egypt. It might be Assyria. God did not get us out of sin, out of the bondage of sin, in order for us to put ourselves back under the bondage of sin. But that's what happens when we forget God. So, you know, when we forget where God is and who God is and how much we need God, then there's nothing in the world we need like we need Him. And uh, Jeremiah gave us a glorious promise. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. I don't have this in our, in our deal tonight. Just listen. Jeremiah 29, 13. And you will seek me, God said, and find me. When you search for me with all your heart. You know that passage is in the same immediate context as that famous passage. That says, for I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil, that I may give you a future and hope. Just right after that, God says, and you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with your whole heart. What a great, great passage. I've never forgotten the words of a great preacher I listened to many years ago who said this at the end of one of his messages. And I'm going to say it to you tonight and to me. He said, you know, I don't know how much of God you've got in your life right now, but it's pretty much about how much you want. That hit me pretty hard. still does every time I think about it. Because you see, that's what Jeremiah says. You will seek me, God says, and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. And how many times, Brother Rich, how many times, Faith Baptist people, how many times would we really say, 
I need God more than anything else. More than I'm concerned, God, about anything else. I need you. I need you. And we go to God then, not because we need His stuff, not because we need His help, not because we need to get out of a jam. We go to Him just because we know we need Him. You'll look for me and find me, God says, when you look with your whole heart. I pray for you tonight. Pray for the people watching from home. You all pray for me. And maybe tonight we can go away with these words ringing in our ear about seeking the Lord with our whole heart. There is no way for us to imagine what God can do in our life and in the life of our church if we seek Him with our whole heart. Let's stand together, please.